All right. So how do we consider that something is actually at work in us? And I think a good analogy would be a blood pressure medicine. A lot of people here probably take one or know somebody that takes one. And when we take a blood pressure medicine, uh, we, we know that it treats a certain issue. So we know high blood pressure this is the doctor in me coming out, right? High blood pressure can lead to stroke and heart attack and uh, kidney issues, eye problems, all kinds of things like that, uh, among other, th- other things. And we see that high blood pressure is at work in us in a negative way by the consequences that come. But on the same, same way, we have blood pressure medicine. And you can take blood pressure medicine. We see those average numbers come down. We're able to measure that, and we're able to see the, the, the average numbers come down, and we see that the outcomes are better in people that keep their blood pressure lower. Uh, And so we can see the blood pressure medicine working in the lives of people. Well, in the same way, in a similar way, we can see the Word of God working in our lives, Uh, right? So so sometimes it's hard to measure that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And sometimes people struggle to read the Word of God regularly because they don't they're having a hard time. They don't have that blood pressure me- you know, medicine and able to check their blood pressure and just see it immediately lower and kind of understand, okay, there's a reason why I take this. And so today we're going to see how we can measure the word at work in the lives of believers. We know the word is at work when it is accepted, when it is accepted. I'm going to reread verse 13 for us. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So interestingly, Paul just spent the entire first chapter, minus maybe verse 1, talking about his thankfulness for the church in Thessalonica. And now we get to verse 13 in chapter 2, and he's already thanking God again for this church. So Paul and his companions are really thankful for one thing in particular, and that is that the, that the church of Thessalonica has received the word of God as the word of God, not the word of men. It wasn't that Paul and his companions brought some great teaching. It was that they took it as the word of God. They understood that this was all from, it was divinely authoritative and inspired by God. And before we get into the meat of this message, I really want us to take a step back and and evaluate what the Bible says about itself about the Word of God. So we you know we throw that word around a lot, the Word of God. It's God's Word. It's an error. Like we, we throw these words around, and I just want you to see that the Scripture teaches this clearly. So just kind of, we're going to kind of fly through a few verses, but I want to show you that, that, it, that it authenticates itself here. So 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by who? By God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Moving forward, John 17.17 17 says that the word is what? Truth, right? Your word is truth. It's inerrant. There's no error in truth. Truth is the opposite of lies or falsehood. We also see the word of God is, is, is living and active in, in Hebrews 4.12 sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning into the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says that it can split you in two so much that you can split what's unsplittable. That's how great God's word is there. And then Isaiah 48, 40, verse 8, shows that the word of God is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, right? Everything that we see in this, on this earth fades. Everything ceases to exist at some point. But 
uh, but the word of our God will stand forever. Notice it doesn't just say God will stand forever. Yes, he will. God is eternal. He will, he will always be. He always has been. He always will be. But it says his word will as well. So this word is the closest thing we can understand about God that is eternal. The words of this, this book are eternal because they are the words of God. And nothing that he says, nothing that he does will ever cease to exist. So as we've seen here, and in your handout, it says this. The, the word of God is from God personally. So this is personally delivered to us from God himself. It's not from men. God wrote it through men, but it is the word of God. The Holy Spirit wrote the word of God through men. We see that it's useful and relevant. It's not just some book we put on the shelf that we like get dusty, that, that it's living and active. Uh, we, we see that it's powerful, that it is living and active, that it can change us. It changes us on the inside and on the out. And then it's eternal, that it will stand forever. In a world that things change from left to right and up and down, we have no idea which way is which, the Word of God is unchanging. And we need to always thank Him for that unchanging Word. So if we get back to our verse 13 here, we actually see two words here that I've underlined for us, received and accepted. And these are the two words that Paul uses for the church of Thessalonica who have accepted the word of God and received the word of God. And these two words are very similar. The first one is received, and that's uh, paralambano is the Greek word for that. And it's a positive word that really kind of means ex- uh, kind of receiving a tradition that's been passed down from man. And, and it's a positive word, and, and, it, and it's used in other parts of the scripture in, in very positive ways. However, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this Greek word accepted, and this is thekame. And, and what this word is, it's extremely it's very close to the word received, but there's a personal application. And, and it's not just that you've received it and taken it. Uh, it's that you've warmly welcomed it. it. It's like a hospitality term. It, it's, you've taken it. You've put it in your heart. It's changing you from the inside out. And so they, did not, they don't, didn't only receive it as truth. They've accepted it as truth, and now they're going to apply it as truth. And I love that warmly welcomed idea. So we think about hospitality. Have you ever had anybody to your home? You know, if you have someone over, you have a guest over, if you're a good host uh, or hostess, um, then you focus on the guest, right? Your, your focus is on the guest, on, on, on is the guest doing well? Or are you being hospitable? Did, did, are, are you expressing your love to that guest? And, and, and there's a de- dedicated energy toward that guest to make sure that their experience is, is good and, and is nice. Well, that's how the, Thessal- the, the church in Thessalonica received and accepted the word of God. Uh, they, they, they warmly welcomed it. Their attention was on the word of God. It wasn't on themselves. It wasn't on their circumstances. It was on the word that they received. And I know I encourage each of us to read the word pretty much every sermon that we talk about, and I try to try to push us to do that. And Maybe I'm like a resounding gong at times. Maybe it's too much. But, but, but it's something we need to be reminded every single week, every single day of just how important the Word of God is because all these other things in life are screaming for our attention, whether it's TV or entertainment or our smartphone or school or whatever you're doing. There's so many things screaming for our attention. But we need to make sure that we see the Word of God as important as it is. And I, I started this, this message off talking about blood pressure medicine. I think most of us here, all of us probably, would know if you didn't take a blood pressure medicine that was prescribed, that it would not have an effect in your life, right? So if I, as a doctor, wrote you a prescription and said, hey, take this medication, 
it'll, it'll help your blood pressure. You say, oh, great, I love it, that's great, you know, I did my research, looks like a great medication, I've, I've read the, you know, there's not many side effects, you know, I see that the outcomes are really good, you have good studies, this is a great one, oh, thanks so much, and then you go, and you put it on your medicine cabinet, and you never open it, you know, it just sits in your medicine cabinet. How much effect is that going to have in your life? Is it going to decrease your stroke or heart attack risk? Is it going to decrease your, you know, your outcomes with kidney function or eyes? No, it's not going to have any effect because if it is not ingested, there's not, there's going to be no follow through. There's going to be no outcomes. The same thing about the Bible. A lot of us will be like, oh yeah, yeah, God's word, inerrant. I agree. You know what? Yeah, there's good stuff. Like you know what, man, I I I agree with it. Jesus, yep, I agree. Jesus lived. He died on the cross. I agree with the Gospels. Yeah, what it says about Jesus, I agree with that. I agree that it'll change your life. Uh, you know, I, I agree that it's that all these things, but a lot of us don't read it. And it's like, well, we're not putting our f- practice into what we're thinking. And so here's the thing. If we really believe that it is what it is, we're going to read it. Because if I told you, hey, you know what? If you eat this certain food, you do this, this is going to happen. You know, most of the time, you're, you're going to do that if you really, truly believe it. And that blood pressure medicine that you're given, most people, if they really believe it's going to save their life, they're going to take it. But if they think, well, you know, I don't really buy those studies. I don't, really, I don't really agree with that. Then you're not, right? And so we can see how important our follow-through is because it shows where our heart is. You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the, the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, we, we also know out of the overflow of the heart, the, the, the body works. We do things because of where our heart is. If our heart is, on, is in Christ and on Christ, we're going to be thinking of the things of Christ. We're going to have a hunger and a thirst for the word of God. And we're going to be like Job. I love, love what Job says. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. We were just joking about food this morning and how we have these different restaurants around here and how it's a great place to be after church, right? Um, but Job says, more than my daily bread, more than my food that I eat every day, I cherish the word of God. I've not departed from the commandments. I've treasured his words more than my portion of food. You know, if we want to see change in us, if, we're gonna, if we want to be able to measure change in us by the word of God, we have to be in the word of God. So I just challenge you, church, today, set a reading plan. It doesn't have to be crazy. It can be one chapter a day. You know, it could be whatever, but, but set a reading plan and stick with it. It's something you got to do every day, not just spor- sporadically, not just periodically. It's got to be done every day because if you don't schedule it, it's probably not going to happen. My friends, you can know the word is at work when it is accepted and warmly welcomed into your lives. And number two, you can know that the word is at work when it is applied, when it is applied. Join me as I read the first half of verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So this is an important verse in this section because we're going to see in a couple of verses, and I, I want to just take this little uh, excursus or, or break uh, for a second to kind of clarify this section of Scripture. It has been used to be anti-Semitic a few times because we're going to see unbelieving Jews and, and the judgment that is coming upon them. Uh, unfortunately, people can take it that way. Yet, yet Paul mentions here, and I want us to kind of highlight this, they became imit- this church of Thessalonica became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in where? Judea. And who was in jo- Judea? Mostly Jews. So we're talking about the churches who are Jewish churches that this church is now 
imitating. Now, these are Messianic Jews. These are Jews who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ that are Christians. So, so just, just know that not all Jews at this point were against God, but the ones we're going to mention here were the ones that, that were, that we'll see here in a little while, that God still has a plan for Israel even to this day, uh, that, that, that God is not just done with Israel. We talked about the covenant with Abraham. Uh, this morning, uh, and, and just, just how God, God is not done with us, and God is not done with Israel, and, and we see here, uh, if we look at Revelation chapter 7, we see that there's going to be 144,000 sealed, and we're going to get into some eschatology or end times theology later on in this book. It's, it's pretty, this is a pretty cool book with a bunch of just different things in it, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And those 144,000 sealed are going to be 12,000 from each tribe of Israel who are saved after the rapture, after believers are taken to meet Christ in the air. We're all removed. The tribulation starts. These 144,000 Jews who are now saved, they realize, hey, we messed up. We missed the Messiah. And they're saved, they're sealed, and they go out and they preach the gospel to a lost world as the Antichrist comes to power over that seven years. And so, so, so we also see that, that God promises in Romans 11.25 this. Let me pull it up. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Right? So a lot, of, a lot of Jews are still in denial even to this day that Christ is the Messiah, even though he came from their lineage. It says that a partial hardening has come until what? The fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So that's us. So the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in, and in this way, Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, so we, we can trust that God has a, a plan for Israel. Yet at the present moment, the Jews now, for the most part, still are hardened against the truth of Jesus Christ, even though we do see some Messianic Jews here and there, which is a blessing. Well, let's get back to our verse there. I just wanted to make sure we realize that this is not an anti-Semitic verse. You can't use this for a Holocaust. You can't use these verses to say all Jews, like, like a lot of horrible people in the past, have done. But if we look back at this verse, we see that they have become imitators of the church in Thessalonica. And, and I love that this, it says the churches of God. And what that means is these are divinely started churches in Judea. Uh, they, they were started by God through the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit has started these churches. And there are churches, plural, here in Judea. So it's not just one. These churches have multiplied, which is what we want to see in our area. We want to see churches multiply. More and more believers, so many believers come in that we don't have room for people. And we want to be able to multiply and send more people out and do the exact same thing. We also see that they are in Christ Jesus. So that means their doctrine, everything, their theology is all based on Christ Jesus. And we see, if we studied Colossians not too long back, not too long ago. It says, for by him all things were created. Kind of moving forward, all things were created through him and what? For him. Everything exists for God's glory. We are in Christ Jesus. Our church is founded by God through the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. We are, we are created for his glory and to bring him glory. And that's why the songs that we sing, that it was finished upon that cross, the reason we, we try to sing to glorify Jesus Christ because he's the one that came and took our punishment on the cross some 2,000 years ago. And these churches in Judea were no different. They, 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 were, they, were, they were formed for Christ's glory. And they became imitators through, through this and, and multiplying. And we see that the word of God is, is applied here uh, to, to, the, the, uh, to the church of Thessalonica. 
And this imitation that they're doing, it's not that they said, hey, we want to be like the churches in Judea, and so we're going to start wearing clothes like that church. We're going to start singing the music that that church sings. It wasn't that type of imitation. They were imitating the, the church of Judea by being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing what God had called them to do. You know, churches, we have different visions, different missions, different areas. You're going to be in different countries sometimes. And even in the same area, you might have a different people group that you're called to minister to. One church may have a certain type of programming or a certain outreach to a certain people, and that is great. And they, and they need to do that if that's what God has given them a vision for. And we have a vision for family, a vision for mentoring, a vision for discipleship, a, a vision for doing life together. Every one of them is different but, but, or the same. But, but the, this church had imitated the churches of Judea in the way that the word of God was applied to them and the way that they responded to persecution the way that they responded to persecution. And so a lot of times we can see how the word has been applied to us, but how we respond in that persecution. And because of that, as, as we've seen the word of God ap- applied, we also see that the word of God is affirmed through persecution as well. So I'm going to read verses 14, the second half of 14 through 16 here. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is a tough section uh, if we look here. So, so we see these unbelieving Jews who are trying to prevent the spread of the gospel. And these unbelieving Jews have, have tried to prevent the, sp- the spreading of God's word even from the beginning of Israel. We see rebellious Israelites all the way from the beginning. And, and we even see Moses as he leads them out. What are they doing? They're complaining half the time. Like most of them are not wanting to do what they're supposed to do. He, always, he keeps a remnant, but, they're, but they're, they continue to do that, continue to disobey. And so we see that verse 15 breaks down five different accusations that Paul has against unbelieving Jews. Again, this isn't to every Jew. This is to unbelieving Jews, and these are them. I'll I'll bring them up here. So it says, Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. And here's the list. So they have killed Christ. They've killed the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God, and they opposed all mankind. And I'm going to go through these. So the first is that they killed Christ. And some people will be like, Well, didn't Pilate kill Christ? So, so the Roman government technically killed Christ because at this point, Israel didn't have the power for the death penalty. They couldn't do capital punishment. Well, if you read the, the account of Jesus and his crucifixion, you see that Pilate didn't want to do it. He'd, he'd wash his hands and said, hey, it, it, I don't think he needs to be killed. He, what did he do to, do that, to deserve that? But the rebellious nature of these unbelieving Jews who were bent on destroying Christ, killing Christ, killing the Messiah, Pilate gave in to their their rebellious demands. Didn't want to see an uprising, and so Christ was crucified. Next, he charges they've killed the prophets. And you're like, well, yeah, if we look back, this is what Jesus actually said about that particular issue in verses 34 through 35 in chapter 23 of Matthew. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you who you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that you may come, or so, so that on you, May come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of uh, Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Israel has a history of killing prophets. Uh, 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 the unbelieving Jews of Israel have a history of this. And, and, and Jesus is even prophesying 
the death of Paul here. Because we're going to see that people are flogged, that they're persecuted, they're thrown town to town, they're thrown out. We see that, that uh, the 10 of the 11 remaining disciples are killed on behalf of Christ, and Paul is as well. So we see that, that Jesus is actually giving even a prophecy that the unbelieving Jews were not done with killing all the prophets of old that they'd killed. They would continue in that. And, and third, these unbelieving Jews had, had driven out Paul. And if you, if you read through Acts, he gets to a city, he speaks in the synagogue. Usually somebody opposes him. Within a little while, he's beat up a few times. He might be thrown in jail. He, you know, he, he, he's left for dead over and over and over again because they have a vehement opposition. And even the church of Thessalonica has seen that up close and personal in Acts 17, as we mentioned before. So, so they, they had planted this church. They're getting started, and what happens? A few unbelieving Jews rise up and throw them out of the city again. Fourth, it states that they displease God. Well, I think that goes without saying that their rebellion is a stench to God. His wrath is growing more and more, as we'll see in verse 16. And lastly, he, oppo- he states that they oppose all mankind. That is a pretty extreme statement. They oppose all mankind. The unbelieving Jews are opposing all mankind. And as we think about that, it doesn't sound near as extreme when we think about John fourteen six that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So by opposing Christ and those who minister for Christ, by trying to suppress the gospel, they are preventing, they're not only keeping themselves from salvation, not only keeping themselves from understanding the good news of the gospel, but they're also preventing the spread of the gospel to other lost people, people that need to hear the gospel. And and there is no worse opposition to mankind, there is no worse opposition than to prevent the sharing of, of the gospel to suppress the gospel and this work of suppressing the gospel which we see in our society throughout is the work of no, none other than satan himself it is demonic work it is work to, that tries to hinder man coming to god it is a work that hinder that tries to hinder man seeing the cross understanding the love of god understanding salvation by grace through faith it, it, it is a work as satan and his demons work so tirely to try to bring about condemnation upon as much of mankind as they can. And it is a stumbling block that prevents others from, from hearing the gospel. So persecution has, has one goal. There's only one goal that persecution has, and that is to stop the message from going forth. That is the only goal that persecution has, is to stop the message from going forth. And, and persecution come in many forms. It can be violent. We see people's lives taken. Uh, we, we, we see a lot, of, a lot of issues, a lot of problems. But it can also be social, and we see this in a lot of Islamic countries right now. Obviously, there are violence in Islamic countries, Islamic-dominated territories, and in, in communist-dominated territories, because Christianity preaches liberty and freedom, that we are free in Christ, and communists don't like that. Is, uh, Islamics don't like that as well, because we say that Jesus is the only way, not Allah, not Muhammad. And so that can be very upsetting to their thing, and politically, they'll try to be politically correct and say, okay, we're not going to persecute people violently, but we're going to get them socially. I was just reading in an in a, uh, article on the Voice of the Martyrs of an Islamic country where Christians won't be killed, but they can only do slave labor-like jobs. That They can't have any prominent position in society. If a, a former Islamic person is saved, if they become a Christian, they lose all of their social standing. They are, they are treated almost like you know, the refuse of, of the earth, and they are given the most hard jobs, not paid hardly anything. And so it is a persecution. And this church in Thessalonica had experienced things like that too. As they, you know, they lived in a pluralistic society. So even though it wasn't like an Islamic society like that, it was kind of like our society. 
And we're starting to see those start to work in here too, where, where when you're quote-unquote closed-minded and you say there is only one truth, well, you kind of get put out of some circles. And right now, those circles are at the university. You're going to have a hard time being a professor at a liberal arts university at Harvard, which sadly was a seminary at the beginning, or Yale, which was a seminary to try to combat the, the liberality starting at Harvard, or, or Princeton, or Dartmouth College, which was supposed to be an evangel- evangelistic missionary uh, seminary for the Indians, Native Americans. So, so all of these schools that were started to propagate the gospel are now, if you're a believer, you're going to have a hard time keeping a job there. Because if you post anything on social media, if you, if you preach anything, you teach anything that gets out there about Jesus being the only way, about homosexuality being a sin, about anything like that, you may lose your job. And so that, we're, we're getting to the point where Thessalonica was, where they're losing their positions, um, where they're being persecuted, sometimes even violently. And they have imitated the church of Judea by standing firm. It is being affirmed in them that they are true believers. And Paul ends with some really harsh words. Uh, if it didn't sound harsh enough, verse 16 is tough. So by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So the first part kind of just explains further that they're opposing all mankind because they're preventing the Gentiles and others to, from being saved. But then it talks about that they're filling up the measure of their sins and that God's wrath had come upon them at last. So let's, let's hit that first statement first. They're filling up the measure of their sins. And a lot of us are like, what does that really mean? Well, what it means is that God is merciful. He doesn't desire anyone to perish, but he desires all to come to a saving knowledge of him. He wants to see everyone saved. He wants to see everyone repent. Now, obviously, we know that's not what happens. Yet eventually... There's a certain measure of sin that, that, that a society hits, that a culture hits, that a country hits, that a city hits, that God says, that's enough, I'm done. And, and we saw that with Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was done. We saw that with Nineveh. So they repented, and God relented, right? So that, how, how amazing was that? But then what happens later, within a generation or two, they're back at their wicked ways, and they're destroyed. Nineveh it is no more, and people walked by it, like we said, and didn't even know it was a city to begin with, no matter how great it was before. God's wrath is poured out. We see the same term, terminology in Genesis fifteen sixteen, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, so what he's saying, Genesis 15, which we read this morning, they haven't sinned enough for me to handle business yet. They will, and it's going to happen. The measure's going to be reached, and my wrath will come. And, and, uh, but, but, but he is so merciful that he puts up with sin to a certain point, that he, want, he desires to see people to re- repented. It says that judgment's his strange work. It's not what he really wants to do. He, he loves to show mercy and compassion. He, he loves people to see the cross and see what he's done by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, and be able to, to forgive our sins. But he's also a just God, and he will punish sinners. And once that measure of, of, of wrath, once that measure of sin has gotten to a certain point, God's wrath does happen. And Paul speaks of it, with, with, with such assuredness that he speaks as if it's already happened. It, it's a way of saying, yeah, you can guarantee it. Put it in the books. Put it in the bank. It's a guaranteed, sure thing that this is going to happen. And that these unbelievers are filling up the measure of their sins. And as they are doing that, Paul wants them to know that at the church of Thessalonica, and, and us as well even today, we have hope. 
we, we know that God is going to right all the wrongs that are done to us, that are done to other believers. And when we, when we read things, when we see people getting slaughtered in the name of Jesus Christ, when we see people being imprisoned, when they lose their jobs, they lose their families, when we see some places where they'll even take their kids because they don't want their kids to grow up with an understanding of Jesus Christ, when we see these horrible things done to Christians throughout this world, and we see the horrible things that were done to the church of Thessalonica, we have hope because we know that God is going to fix it. He's going to right all the wrongs. His wrath will fall upon those who are ungodly and refuse to repent. But I also want us to think about that measure of wrath as well, because that measure of wrath is working its way up in the lives of unbelievers today. And we have people in our communities, people in our families, that are working on that measure of, and we don't know what that number is. We don't know it's this, this number of sin. It's this bad of a sin. It's this point. God only knows. He's the only one that knows what that measure is when his wrath will be released, when we will be eternally judged, when, when mercy is no more, it, when we're not able to make that decision anymore. Once we die, we know that that is definitely that point, that there is no hope after death, and this is the only hope that we have. I pray that we, we understand that wrath that, that is coming upon those people, and that we share the beauty of the gospel with them. Because here's the thing. All of us, everyone here, was in the same boat as these unbelieving Jews at some point. Some of us may, be in, been, may have been saved at a young age. We might not remember what it was like to not have the Holy Spirit, to not be saved. But, but all of us at some point were without God. We're, we're without hope. We're, we're working on the measure of sins to get to a certain point where the wrath of God would be poured out and we would be forever in hell. That is where we were at. But God, being rich in mercy, right? Not only did but God do this great thing by sending his son, Jesus Christ, down the cross, but God also sent someone to tell you about Jesus Christ, to share the gospel. As we've said many times, no one has believed unless he's heard, right? And, and so our job is to, to preach the word, to, to share the gospel. There's no more loving thing that you can do to anyone in this world than to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where to share the good news of Jesus Christ is opposed by Satan, just like the unbelieving Jews oppose all mankind. That's what world we live in today. Whenever you share the gospel, that's narrow-minded. That's closed-minded. That's, that's horrible. How, how are you to judge me? I, I'm not judging you. You all aren't judging anyone. The Word of God stands in judgment, and it preaches the truth. We were just talking about it in growth group this morning, that, that it's actually really condemning to say there is no real truth. Postmodernism is one of the most condemning things in the world because now what is real, what is right, what is wrong, is, is this okay, is that okay? I'll follow your heart. Two things can be right but yet contradict. That's the confusion leads to suicide. That kind of confusion leads to dark, dark places because nobody knows what's right. Nobody knows what's wrong. But the Word of God is clear. It is unchanging. It's authoritative. It's firm. It is eternal. It is from God. And it's, it's not judgmental because what it does is it takes that judgment. Christ took the judgment on the cross. The Bible is liberating. The Bible tells us that you can't do it. I was talking to a friend of mine who's an atheist, and, and he got so angry because I was talking to him about the Ten Commandments and how he couldn't hit them and, and how, how, how that wasn't, it, he wasn't able to do it. And he got so angry, and he was like, well, what's wrong with God? How much does he have to hate people to create a law that they can't do? They, they, they can't get it. I, I, you know, wh- how, how, how awful and evil is your God? He's like, I don't believe in that kind of God. I was like, I don't either. He was so confused. He was like, I was like, you get it. 
because God created this to let you know that you can't do it without him. And what he did was he did it for you on the cross so that even though you can't hit those things, even though you can't be perfect, even though you're going to lust, even though you're, you're, you're going to, to be a, a, a thief, even though you're going to download music you shouldn't download or do this, even if you've done anything like that, you can still be forgiven. And so the law is there to prove to you that you are a sinner, that, that you have, that you fall short. And praise be to God, that's not where the story ends. The story ends at the cross, the, the account of Jesus Christ where he took on our sins. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and his comment to me was, well, maybe it's too late for me. And, and I love that comment because obviously we know it's not. And I'll let him know, so you haven't died yet, so of course it's not too late. Now, once you die, it will be too late. You, you will get that point. But that one statement said, I'm thinking about it. Like, it, 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 it was something like, okay, I get it. But, but so many people... They, they let themselves get lost in the law. They let themselves just spend all this time being like, well, I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I'm just so burned by the law, and, and don't do this, and do this, and don't do this. Yes, we need to seek to obey the will of God. We need to obey, but here's the thing. We can't do it on our own. We, we, we can't check the boxes. We, we can't get there, but Jesus can, and he did for us. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ and we realize that we fall short, that, that we need him, we can have freedom. Because then when we do fall, we pray to God and say, God, help me not to do that anymore. Help me to do what's right. Help me to do it through your, your power because I can't on my own. Friends, I, I pray that you share this good news and see the good news in the gospel as it really is, just how pertinent it is. As we come to a close, I, I pray that we see the gospel, the, the word of God, by being accepted applied and affirmed in our lives. I pray that we see the affirmation of the Word of God in the lives of believers by sharing with others, that, that it is affirmed and confirmed as, as we share it with other people, that, that God is working in us. If you're somebody who's listened to this message and you're like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not so sure I fully accepted it as truth. I think maybe it's one of the truths I've accepted, but there's other truths that maybe contradict. And I, I've grown up in this world where there, where there are multiple truths. I'm really struggling through accepting it as the only truth and you know i'm not really seeing it applied in my life the the way and definitely not seeing it confirmed in what i do and what i say what i watch where i go i'd love to 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 discuss the gospel more more thoroughly with you and help you understand it on a deeper level because true believers have the word working in them that they can see the measure they can can measure what god is, is doing in them day by day i'd love to share more fully what it means to be a true follower of jesus christ let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. God, if anyone does not know you as their Lord and Savior today, I pray that they come to a saving knowledge of you today. I pray that they come and talk to me, that we're able to, to talk about what it really means to put your, put, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who are believers, may we, may we truly practice what we preach. God, we may say certain things like the word of God is living and active. We may, we may say that it is true, that, that it is eternal, that it is inerrant, without error. We may say we believe everything in it. We believe that, that there are 66 books, 1,189 chapters. We may, we may say that we believe that, that you divinely inspired and wrote through men. But God, we, we may not practice it, God. So I pray that you help us to practice what we preach, that you help us to, to have conviction and strong conviction that, that we read it, that we cherish it, that we love it, Lord, and that we love you through the word of God. 
God, we love you. We praise you and thank you. Help us to have a great uh, day today and glorify you and make much of you. Amen. Have a blessed week.